0: Matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco.
1: When she comes to greet me. Well, hello there, and welcome to this Wednesday. I'm Dr. Peter Sacko, the Canada Psych Doc, and welcome to Matters of the Mind. And with me always is my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. How are you, Todd?
0: Excellent. Really looking forward to to, uh, today's topic, for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They say that money makes the world go round or doesn't make the world go round. But depending on what you're seeing out there nowadays, the amount of technological toys and bling... And keeping up with the joy Joneses, I think, is not a thing of the past. I think it's still ongoing. Would you agree, Todd?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a, especially with the teens. You know, the teens are all about, you know, oh, Becky got the iPhone 5. I've got to get, I've only got the 4S, you know, or they got the big Samsung with the six-inch screen. And, you know, uh, it's all about keeping up with the Joneses. And I think while it was present in, in my generation, your generation, I think it's even become more pronounced with our, our younger generation.
1: Absolutely. In fact, you know, a lot of people will say this and it's kind of interesting uh because we're going to talk about this. Some people believe uh especially since the law of attraction, law of intention got re-released about 10 years ago and became really popular that the spiritual component is more important than the tangible material component to happiness. However, there are some of those that'll say, "Really? Cuz if I have money, then I can actually fulfill my dreams and help other people people fulfill their dreams, Todd." So, what we're going to talk about today is I guess to start of show out after our first break is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For those that have never heard of the famous Abraham Maslow, he created this beautiful hierarchy, this pyramid that shows how fulfilled we are in terms of our life. And then later on our show, we're going to have the great Kevin Murdoch, who is Division Director for Investors Group Financial Services, sharing his opinion on the matter.
0: Yeah, so much of the financial, and I thought the, Kevin would make a great guest. He's, he's uh a very um, outspoken, um, uh, you know, former financial advisor, and now he manages all the other consultants that uh, that help us with our financial planning. So we're going to try and, and demystify a little bit about what financial planning is and then relate how finances really impact several of the the basic needs that are on Maslow's hierarchy and, you know, how they can reduce stress and, and allow you to do so many other great things with your life.
1: You know what, Todd? I think there are going to be people listening today that, you know, some people go, my gosh, you know, this finance thing, I don't want to hear about it because I'm tired of it because I've just gone through tax time and it's tax season. And you know what? There's a lot of people that are going to actually be getting money back. So maybe just listening to what Kevin has to say about finances could actually set your future on a better part.
0: Kevin is a is a wizard with the numbers, so we're gonna get him on the line. You are of course listening to Matters of the Mind. The doc is online on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk radio.ca. We'll be right back.
1: Johnny get
2: angry, Johnny get angry.
1: I'm Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more.
0: Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco.
1: It's Dr. Peter Sackle and welcome back to Matters of the Mind. So what are you thinking about, thinking about your finances, thinking about money, thinking about creating this amazing nest egg that is going to set you up for the rest of your life or are you one of these that enjoys and lives for the moment now and worries about paying later? So how would that define you for those listening? How about you Todd, you a live in the moment type guy or down the road type guy?
0: Uh, I think I'm a bit of both. I think when I was younger, probably like a lot of young people, it was always live in the moment because there are no guarantees about the next day or, you know, we were in the 80s You know, I grew up in the 80s. So there was all that, uh, you know, Cold War stuff coming back and nuclear proliferation and blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of like, hmm, I don't know if I'm going to be around for very much longer. So it was very much live in the moment. And then, you know, when you get older and you have kids and you have to mortgage and rent and you start thinking about the the longer-term picture, but, you know, I mean, money's one thing, but, I mean, like today's topic, there's love, there's comfort, there's all these other wonderful things that everybody says they need.
1: And a lot of this stems from a 1954 book that the famous psychologist Abraham Maslow wrote called Motivation and Personality. And for those not familiar with it, myself having taught intro psychology, humanistic psychology, you name a type of psychology, I've taught it, and to be honest I cannot get away from you, not using Maslow at some level in some of the courses that I do because he's very profound and it speaks a lot. So for those of you imagine in your mind right now this pyramid will actually pretend it's colored different layers different colors almost like those jellos, you know, the three layers or whatever. And what Maslow did is he created this wonderful hierarchy where he says um, most people in the beginning will you know, need physiological needs met, which is, you know, anything from breathing, food, water, sex, sleeping, and the the overall, this kind of sense of comfort. Then he says, as we progress in a life, we need safety, which is, you know, a sense of security of our bodies, the resources that we have, our families are safe, our own health is, our employment, and our properties, even though the fact that we put fences up. And then Maslow says, that's kind of cool, but then we need a little more, we strive for more which he says that is the third level which is loving and belonging which means these are the types of friendships we establish the connections to our family and of course our own relationships with other significant others in terms of sexual and intimacy then maslow says most people are content to just make it to the third level and kind of stay there because it's the end all be all in fact, it really is traditionally when you look at it the american dream house cars Financial wealth to a degree, family with your kids and you know, work till you retire and that's it. And then Maslow says a smaller percentage will strive to a fourth level called the esteem needs level, which is achievement in your life, respecting others, respecting yourself, and attaining this tremendous level of self-confidence and self-esteem, which kind of sets you apart from others, which means You don't get rejected easily. That you're actually pretty cool in your skin, and hey, you can kind. It's great to have all the wealth and all that kind of stuff. But what's most important to you is a sense of dignity, integrity, and self-respect. Then Maslow says there is a minute percentage that gets to this fifth level of self-actualization in the hierarchy, which is morality, uh, the ability for acceptance of the way life is, um, spontaneity you're a problem solver, you're basically a Socrates or a modern day version of Mother Teresa an altruistic kind of person that wants to get to this highest level. But what was really interesting Todd Maslow had actually talked about a fifth or a sixth level above and beyond that which was this deep spiritual level connecting with the spirit so that's Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs in a nutshell so let me ask you this Todd do you think in today's society we are still content to be on the first three levels of physiological safety and loving and belonging, or are more people trying to become self actualized?
0: Um, l- let me just step back for a minute. For, for those that don't know it or want to see it, we're going to have it in a blog post so that you can actually follow along at home. But it being a pyramid, as you know, as it starts at the bottom, the base. You know, as you said, it impacts more people. Everyone needs the, the the basic biological and physical needs. And as the hierarchy goes up and the pyramid gets smaller, more and more people uh, choose to go down that path. And I, I think it's important that it's not necessarily a matter of wealth or circumstance that dictate whether you go higher on the hierarchy. It's, I guess, is it more of a... Um, an intention, a drive to to get to those other levels, because I think, as you said, um, I feel more and more people are going to those those last two levels. I think more more and more people are mo- are uh, meditating and being more present and doing the big thinking and the compassion and the interaction with with society as as a whole to try and make it better, so I think yes, I think we are moving there in today's society. but but like I said, I don't think it's money holding people back from doing that. Do you do you think it's a, a situational circumstance like that like money and that or or where you live that prevents people from going higher up the hierarchy?
1: You know what, Todd, one of the things I guess I will assert um, with this, just to clarify, Maslow never said, for those listening, that you have to give up the bottom ones to get to the top, you know what I mean? Like the monkhood, squalor type of thing where you go to a kibbutz <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere, you give up all your possessions. Um, so you're not
0: wearing a potato sack or a, a robe or anything like that?
1: No, no. And that's, you know, that was never Maslow's intention. You know, the whole thing with Maslow talks about is the ability, and this is the way I've always taken it and I've taught it, is the ability to integrate your complete being at a fundamental level where you view yourself as a bio. Logical person, a psychological person, a sociological person, and a spiritual person, and this is kind of the premise, Todd, that when I when I teach treatment for overcoming addictions like alcoholism, drug abuse, and that stuff, even gambling, where you see yourself as a complete entity, not just a physical body or you know a suit of flesh, and you're also just not a spiritual being, because I don't think anybody, Todd, can just meditate there and say, I don't have to eat, I don't need a shelter over my house or over my life or my being because I can just meditate and this is going to be the end all be all. And I say, anybody out there listening, I throw this out there, good luck with that one. If you wanted to go meditate this past winter in the heart of Toronto, by the water, sit there going hum, hum with no roof over your head all day and all night, I don't think you're going to last very long.
0: No. Uh, You know, I I like to bring up the example of Steve Jobs because here was a man that had incredible wealth and yet he was on this incredible search to get to his core being. So he became highly enlightened in a lot of aspects, but uh, a very flawed human being where he didn't use his wealth to impact uh, society for a greater good other than his devices which he created. So I've always found him a bit of a paradox, someone that was on that, um, you know, the fourth or fifth level of uh, Maslow's hierarchy where he was looking at becoming, you know, um, an expert and and respected. But that fifth level sort of eluded him where he was trying to uh, have a bigger impact on society in a more holistic way.
1: I guess then, if you're going to use the example of Jobs, because you can compare him to Bill Gates, because Bill Gates, you know, we, we hear about what he does for society. Right. You could say that Bill Gates is successful from that point of view. But let me, I guess, play the – I'll <laughs> stir the pot here a bit, Todd.
0: Okay. If
1: a person is doing this to be the ultimate philanthropist, you yep. know what I mean, where yep. they want to give, give, give away, are they doing this then – because it gives them this tremendous sense of satisfaction, which kind of in a roundabout way completes them psychologically. And if that really is it, um, is it still to a degree they're using their wealth to accomplish this? Like, would they be able to do it in some other way if they didn't have the wealth, let's say? Would they be out there being a volunteer selflessly? Because the example I use, and I've talked to students about this. I believe that during my time, I was a lot younger, Mother Teresa is one of the most profound, influential people that has walked this earth during our generation. That Mother Teresa, at any point, if she wanted to be a multimillionaire, you know, do the whole Oprah series, the books and all that stuff, she could have been wealthy as heck. But there was a woman that actually took this uh, spiritual fulfillment all the way. You know what I mean?
0: You know, I think it has to be inside of you. I think there has to be a, a genuine need and compassion for other human beings to recognize their circumstances and try and make it better. And and those people have an incredible sense of where they're at in the world in terms of their uh, financial stability. And, and even those people that don't have a lot of money find a way to... Give some away and help people. And and I know certain religions are big on, uh, especially the Christian faith, on tithing, giving a certain percentage of your income away every year for for, uh, purposes to help others. Um, So would they, you know, I think some people are maybe just a bit too worried about themselves and they want to get that stability and that financial wherewithal to help others. And there are others that don't care where they are. They're not waiting for that perfect moment or, or yeah, as soon as I get a million dollars in the bank, I'm going to help others. It's sort of every day. What can I do? I've got an old suit I can give away. I've got a blanket. I've got a bed. You know, they're just doing basic things every day to help others.
1: So do you think then, Todd, and, you know our our guests will probably be talking about this to a degree that the majority of people that are in financial hawk basically in problems are not just young adults but teenagers so i guess the question is is are we so stimulated by commercialism um, and having to have everything that everybody else has that if we just reverted to this tithing and actually trying to support our society helping the less fortunate Do you think there'd be that many people in financial ruin and dismay if people were actually being more altruistic?
0: Um, I I think, I'm not going to use a a big brush, but I think society in general today has a fixation, uh, even more so on, like we said earlier, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, the the, the great car, the nice house, the boat, the cottage, um, you know, the perfect straight teeth, the plastic surgery. I think there's a, a focus and a fixation on that. But I think what we need to do, and there's a small core group of people that I've noticed just within my friends list that are getting back to the basics, reaching out, helping other people. What can I do? What can I do to help you today? Um, And I think when they start taking care of others, it will definitely have an impact on their own lives, both financially, spiritually, emotionally. There's a big payback there. And, you know... uh, like we've been talking about with the secret and, and and gratitude, being grateful, people have been telling me if you show more gratitude, you get more things in return, and you don't do it selfishly; you do it as a as a gesture. I'm really happy with where I am, and uh, you know I like my life. And what I've been told is that you're going to get more in return,
1: and and that's part of it. I think you know where you look at it, part of, indicative of the problem where it's. See I'm one and I'm, I come from the Jack Canfield School of Thought because I'll say point blank, Jack has been a mentor to me and I appreciate and love everything Jack has said because Jack is a walking successful person but Jack is somebody that lives with an attitude of gratitude and he subscribes to giving and some of my other uh, mentors that I have like Robert Schuler, and that have taught me that and I guess one of the things that's interesting with this is living with an attitude of gratitude Todd but also i don't believe in just being and this is work it's really a slippery slope i don't believe in living in a status quo existence of contentment because i think at that point there you never live to your fullest potential and this undermines everything that maslow was saying because if you say okay uh, the example and i i don't know if it was canfield that it brought this up um, or it, it could have been napoleon hill where you you have a salesperson that they make each year almost without a word of a lie 90,000 bucks they keep making it consistently Mm -hmm. and I remember reading the story the guy was making bumpkiss for the first eight months made maybe 10,000 bucks then whoa right in the last quarter makes it 90,000 bucks then the next year comes Todd the guy makes something like 65,000 bucks within the first two months then for the rest of the year, he only goes on and make 15,000 bucks. So is it a matter of uh, you know the deck of cards, the hand you're being dealt with? Is it just misfortune or do you get to this point of contentment, you basically put the car on cruise control right. and say, I, I'm, I'm okay where I am, I don't need to do anymore. And I remember, I think it was Jack that brought this up that you're going to get at thoughts where thoughts go, energy flows. So you're going to get to the level that you deem acceptable to yourself. So always think greater things for yourself because you'll achieve greater levels. And Tony Robbins used to talk about this. And by getting to greater levels, not only are you doing this to achieve it for yourself, but then that gives you the means, not only financial but also the influence in society to help other people accomplish and live their dreams.
0: Yeah, and that's what you we were talking about earlier. Most people are satisfied with getting to the third level. Okay, I've got the nice car, the nice house, the great relationship, kids are great. Um, I'm done, you know, I'm happy, I'm gonna put it on cruise control and you know maybe they're in their mid 40s early 40s late 30s depending upon how much money they make but I remember your example about the $90,000 and that was something that Jack talked about in the success principles as well where he says um, what you envision is what you get so if you think oh wow I'd really like to make $90,000 this year you're probably gonna make it you won't make more and as you said in those last couple of weeks you'll find a way to close a few deals to hit that $90,000 mark and Jack is very much about okay let's say this year's 90000 what's next year is 90 is 90 not enough would you like more what's what is that number be specific so you you know in unspecific um, uh, wishes get unspecific results so you need to be really specific
1: Well, yeah, because part of it is, is even if you ask that person who makes 90,000 bucks and it turns out they make that 90,000 bucks for that year again, Todd, that person will say, see, I can only make 90,000 bucks. It's almost like there's a heavenly cap, cap on this level that I can earn. So basically, you're projecting and putting it out there, it's, and you're going to live to making 90000
0: It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've said that's what you're going to make. So you only subconsciously, unconsciously, I'm not sure, you work that hard to make that income.
1: Yeah, and I'll throw this out there, and I'm not to disrespect anybody that's in a lower socioeconomic bracket that says all my family and their fam, my grandparents, great-grandparents, all we've ever been able to do is be waitresses, waiters, and that sort of stuff, and this is the end-all, be-all for us, and this is all I can probably ever be. And no, that's not the case. You might have been told that, but the worst thing is that you tell yourself. And once again, I'm not diminishing that career, because I think it's a great career, especially if you're making, you know, it's, it's sustaining, it satisfies you, it fulfills you, and it's putting, you know, food on the table. But if you're a person that's saying, I hate this job, it's always been this way. Then you're doing a disservice to yourself because you've chosen that mindset, and you're now fulfilling. And Maslow would say the self-actualization or esteem needs that I this is all I can ever be.
0: Two two examples. Um, one is uh, Sliced Alone. You know, did he had this idea for this movie about a, a you know washed-up boxer and uh, never being able to make it, and then he saw a fight where that exact scenario came to pass, and he thought okay, I can do this. And he wrote the original screenplay of Rocky, and we all know where that went. I mean, he ended up doing six of them, I think. Uh, and it kick- kick-started his career in Hollywood. The other example is Jack Canfield working with his uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul guy when they did their first book. You know, they had it in their mind that they were going to sell, I can't remember how many copies it was, like a thousand copies or something, and they ended up doing it because they had it in their minds that... I'm a teacher and you're whatever your profession is, but that's not where we want to be. We want to move on and do other great things. And they made it happen because it was positive mental energy.
1: Yeah. And I remember Jack telling me that I was talking to him. And then Jack, because, you know, I write and. I was asking Jack just about the frustration of it. And anybody who's in the writing business knows it first well. You get a hell of a lot of rejection. And I get a lot of rejection every week because people go, Well, how'd you get published, man? Is it that easy? It's like, well, no, you're gonna get rejected many, many, many times. And I think Jack and Mark Victor Hansen, because I spoke with Mark too, that's Jack's partner right. for chicken soup. And Mark said it too. He's like, Pete, like it was something like hundred and forty something no's we got. But I remember how uh, Jack, put it to me, Todd, Mark said the exact same thing. They said each time you can either look at it and get discouraged and go, this is never going to happen. Or you can say, thank you. Thank you to God. Thank you to the universe, whatever you subscribe to. That that one no means I'm that much closer to that yes. And eventually they got their yes with Peter Vexco in Florida to get that publishing deal.
0: And and there's something in the success principles that's coming back to me right now. And, it, and it's it's uh, it's just one word and it's next. You know, it's Not <laughs> your favorite four-letter word. Well, exactly. You you get a rejection, you smile, you let it pass, and you say next, and you keep looking uh, and you keep digging until you find a way to make your dream happen. And if you are, you know, a waitress or a server or someone that is trapped in that job, as as Dr. Sacco says, it's not it's not a dead end. You know, someone had to change their story, or else we wouldn't have had an Oprah. We wouldn't have had a Tony Robbins, a Jack Canfield, a Sylvester Stallone. They changed, they didn't change the backstory. They acknowledged it and said, okay, my story changes from today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you can look at some of the most famous stories involving Steven Spielberg, where he just, you know, literally a a, a situation where he just, dreamt it, imagined it, visualized it, went on a set there all the time on the tours through universals I believe or whatever and eventually just believed it would happen. Same thing with uh, Tyler Perry, the famous director and actor of Medea. you know, this guy, this fellow here was, you know, basically in poverty. Uh, We can go as far as Walt Disney, Uh, all of them, if you look at all these great success stories and that's why I, I really harp on them, go read these biographies. And because, and then, you know, the thing taught a lot of people get caught up in this dichotomous thinking is that, well, I'm not them. It'll never happen to me. They were lucky. They got blast. No, what, one thing that they did that most people give up on is perseverance. They believed in it.
0: You know, there's a great example in Steve, um, in uh, Jack's book, The Success Principles, about an older gentleman that started working for uh, Stephen J. Canal, who was the, the great 80s uh, TV guy, you know, so many great shows, and um, and there's the, the, the basic story is that no one wanted to do anything above and beyond, so this older guy uh, took it upon himself to get Stephen's suit pressed and left in a limo for him, and he started being a driver for him, and he just went out of his way to do all these things and work harder and started in the mailroom And before you knew it, this guy was an executive producer on one of his shows. Like, uh, I can't remember, was it Hill Street Blues or something? But, you know, it just goes to show that if you work harder than everyone else, it's not necessarily luck. It is hard work, you know? And
1: it's a belief. I think it's an intrinsic belief in yourself. And that's where the part is when we go back to Maslow. And that's one of the highest things um, or, or components when you get to the esteem level which is the fourth level in Maslow's hierarchy of needs and succeeding, that's your belief in self. And that's why most people won't get as far as they want because it has to do with the disbelief in themselves or this will never happen. It's been so long, um, the cards are stacked against me. They
0: spend so much time thinking about why it can't happen and that's precisely why it doesn't happen or hasn't happened to that point. There's always this... Drama, And there's always this negative energy around them that, oh, it can't happen to me. And you have to give it up, stop complaining, and really think about the positives that can come out of it. And that, yes, you know, it's not guaranteed that you'll be a success, but you will be more successful just by taking that first step and saying, I'm going to give it a try.
1: You know what, Todd? It's kind of interesting, and I'm glad you brought that point up because some people would say what we talk about most is what interests us. And for the person that's constantly complaining about the way their life is or the way their life isn't, I've always said, are you talking about it to such a degree that even the misery interests you or stimulates you? And then I I know somebody who, you know, anybody who believes in looking at um, the law of attraction and success principles that way would say, what you focus on is what you're going to bring more into your life. So, are you bringing more into your life because this is what you're content with and you understand it and it makes you feel comfortable? Because there's the old saying, misery loves company. Or are you really complaining about it because you don't like it? And so why aren't you acting on it?
0: I think it's partly habit. It's just what you're used to. But it's also very much that it's a comfort. It's a known, you know, you're in your comfort zone and, you uh, And it's like they say, when you're in your comfort zone, it's a lot easier to stay there than to gain some inertia and some momentum and move out of it. You know, it's like a rock sitting at the bottom of a a pit and you're trying to roll that rock up the hill. It takes a lot of momentum and hard work to get that rock moving. But once it's moving, it sort of maintains its momentum. So and I do know a lot of people in my own personal life that love complaining. They love just saying life's crappy. You know, Hmm. life is awful. And so, you know, but it really takes some ed- effort and dedication to move past that.
1: And you know what, Todd? It was really interesting. I read somewhere and there was a study done on this that people who've always said, man, I wish I could win a million dollars, win the lottery, do all this stuff. Because if I could, I would see the world. I would go all over the place and do everything I've always wanted to that I've never had the financial means to do. And I remember reading the study, and it showed something that people who have won the lottery and people that do come into this money, most of them don't travel any further than a thousand miles away from there a thousand miles or less, and the majority of them don't even make it five hundred miles from where they live
0: and there's you know a sad reality too that a lot of these people that come into that kind of instant money end up being worse off than they were before they had it you know there's heart attacks and You know, just losing the money and, and, uh, you know, I guess you're getting attraction from a lot of people who show up banging on your door saying, (laughs) support my initiative. You know, you might get a call from a down and out screenwriter that wants to show up and have you bankroll their movie. But eh, that's just the way it goes, I guess.
1: Yeah. And for anybody out there listening, I guess I'd throw this question. you: If you won 649, the lotto or whatever lottery exists in your part of the world that you're listening to the show, would it change you? How would it change you? And what would you do with the money immediately? Would you actually go and start spending it immediately? Or would you take time, like literally maybe a month, other than paying off your bills, uh maybe helping those closest to you that need it immediately, would you actually sit on it for a bit or find a financial advisor and do it the right way before you blow it and find yourself in squalor?
0: yeah and we're gonna we're gonna talk to a money man now who's going to uh, help us spend our tax return or uh, just demystify the whole financial planning process and also get into some of how money has a direct impact on a lot of those needs that mr. Uh, mr. Maslow came up with so long ago. You are, of course, listening to Matters of the mind. The doc is online. We'll be right back. Annoying. Frustrating. Of
1: course you're referring to me. Some
0: days, enlightening, engaging.
1: And now you're referring to yourself. Most
0: days. (laughs) Just a few of the words employed
1: to describe our show, The Motts. You'll come up with your own. Hi, we're The Motts, Paul and Carol. Inviting you to join us weekdays at 2 on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. And there's an encore performance with Motts Weekend.
0: You can check us out at themots.ca. Here's another word for
1: you. Oh, I wouldn't go there.
0: You are listening to Mental Health Matters with your host Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca.
1: Well, hello there. It's Dr. Peter Sacco, Canada Psych Doc, back on line here. And as we were talking before we went to break, we're talking about finances today, living within your means or living outside your means and getting in a massive trouble, even going bankrupt or being really miserable. So for the millions out there listening, we know it's tax season and some of you are going to be getting your money back. So what better person to have on here than our great guest, Kevin Murdoch, who is the Division Director for the Investors Group Financial Services. Hey there, Kevin. How's it going? It's going great. Going great. Thanks for having me. So, Kevin, I'm going to throw you uh, maybe a little bit of a lob ball. We'll <laughs> ball it's not to start, yeah. We'll get you easier. We're not going to get you switch hitting right from the get-go from both sides of the plate. So, Kevin, I guess the question is, I'll throw it there. Would you say that today's Individual, You know, you're in Canada, but the bottom line is Canadians are much like Americans, like Europeans, like Australians all around. Mm-hmm. Do people really live within their means nowadays?
2: Uh, no. not. Th- 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 I think they can, but they don't do a very good job of it. I think, I think, it's funny, when I get asked the question, um, I'm often asked is, who do I think is my biggest competition from a business point of view? And I think they think, People assume the answer is going to be, you know, a bank or some other financial company. My answer is Walmart. <laughs> hmm. okay. and, and that's what they ask, they ask. That is the response I get. Hmm. They say, why? I say, because if Canadians did, and I don't mean to say stop going to Walmart or those stores, but giving up a little bit of instant gratification for some future planning. They would find that over time, and in a lot less time than they might think, they'd actually have enough money to do both. But they can't. They can't stop getting that extra thing at Walmart—that impulse
1: thing. Okay, I'm really intrigued by this. What would that thing at Walmart be then? Are we talking? Oh, I mean, I I I don't want to pick
2: on Walmart, so please don't have the lawyers call me. (laughs) Um, It's just about buying something for today.
1: Like a knick-knack, even like, going to oh, a oh, It could store. be a boat.
2: <laughs> oh, a boat. It could be a boat. It could be anything. It's, I would much rather spend my money today and get instant satisfaction gratification than worry about the rainy day in the future.
0: So a, a real example would be, I'm walking through a, a, a rather large electronics store, and instead of thinking about which TV I'd like to get in the size, I see a great sale, and I say... That baby's coming home with me today.
2: Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the TV at home. Exactly. (laughs) And you just, it's that, and I guess it kind of ties into, I think you guys were talking about Maslow's, is that, you know, that esteem, that, that social, you know, what the Joneses have. And they don't do enough about saving money for their own, and when I say future, that future could be anywhere between five years to 30 years in the future. There are too many people that have a um, the mindset that I need to reduce my debt and eliminate it
1: before I can start saving. And that's a, okay, so that's so a pretty let, common
0: misconception, yeah.
1: Yeah. So and first all, I just want to qualify anybody out there with the last name Jones, I'm sorry, we're not really picking on Yeah. That's what we're gonna get is emails about Jones. So let me ask you this, because this is something that has come up often that I hear about, Kevin. Yeah. What is more detrimental? Is it the small stuff that people buy at these department stores, even dollar stores that are menial in the moment, a dollar here, five dollars there, but they're doing this consistently over a month, then months, half a year, a year, or is it the big boat? What well, sets you up for bigger disaster?
2: It's the—it's it, a combination of both, and I'm not trying to fudge on that answer, but when I sit down with a family or clients, what we do is what, one of the things we do is our, their monthly cash flow. And even when I do it, it's not designed to be to the penny, because not everybody remembers exactly how much they spend on groceries a month and, and, and car insurance and those types of things. But it's designed to figure out, okay, how much money do you bring in? How much money do you take out? And financial planning isn't designed, how do I say this, isn't designed to add to your monthly expenses, it's designed to incorporate your current monthly expenses and build that financial plan. And if I can give you a real, sort of hopefully a quick example, I met with a gentleman and he was, he, when, he, when I first started to chat with him, he said I couldn't help him because he lived paycheck to paycheck. And when I got him to meet, I actually, I, when I got him to meet, I said, here's one thing I want to leave you with. I said, what if I'm right? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I see a hundred of you. I see people like you every day. I understand why you think you can't help you, because you see just you. I see hundreds of you, and I get to help them. So that where he came in to see me, $64 a month to the good. That's what he had left over. In terms of building him a financial plan, because he, he was a self-employed contractor. If he doesn't work, he doesn't get paid. He has a one-year-old son. He has to protect his income. He doesn't have any savings. That plan I put together for him. Cost nine hundred dollars. Now, if I had started with that and said, <laughs> "I need something," you're going to put. It's going to cost you nine hundred dollars a month. Well, of course, he's going to laugh me out of his house. <laughs> but what I did before that was I rearranged and was able to rejig his cash flow and increase it twelve hundred dollars a month. So he went from sixty-four dollars a month to twelve hundred and sixty-four dollars a month. And it was funny, because when I, when I met him again to show him his options, I said, okay, if I put $200 a month into your pocket and make this $64, $264, are you going to be happy? He said, I'd be bloody ecstatic. I said, okay, if I do that, you're going to be a client. He says, absolutely. I said, okay, here's 1200 <laughs> And when I showed him that it wasn't you know smoke and mirrors and this was real, he got. I mean, imagine how excited he got, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You said you were going to be happy with 200 <laughs> And mm-hmm. that's when I showed him the plan that I put together that cost him 900 So not only now does he have security, he's not going to be rich by, the, by anybody's dreams, but he's going to be much better off than he was before we chatted. And that plan that I put together for him cost $900 a month that he now has. So he ended up having all of these things in place that he didn't have before that he knows he needs. And at the end, he still he had actually $300 left over a month in his pocket.
0: So was that a combination of cutting back on the, the small daily expenses that he was frittering money away? Or how did you piece that together?
2: Well, in that particular case, there were two options for him. One was what we call a consolidation loan. And in his case, he had three different types of loans, we'll call it. He had a, he had a car loan a boat loan, and some and credit card debt. So he's paying three different amounts of money for three different loans on three different interest rates. So we gave him, and I think if I remember correctly, the total was around about $45,000 owed on these three things. He, Based on the way he was going, he was going to be debt-free, with the exception of his mortgage, in 17 years. The plan I put together for him, he'll be debt-free, with the exception of his mortgage, in five years. Wow. Hmm. Okay? And in that little consolidation loan, I took the three loans, totaling 44000 turned it into one loan. And that payment, the three payments, totaled about $1,400. For a $44,000 loan, the one payment was, was $959. So it saved him about 500 bucks a month right there. You see, he still owed the money. He still paid the debt. So I didn't change it. I don't, I'm not a miracle worker. I can't make debt go away. But if you structure it properly, you can pay it off earlier. And that's the sad thing that too many people in Canada don't want to take the time to see what they can do.
0: So this actually, like I was thinking earlier, it really impacts several of the needs within Maslow's hierarchy because you're reducing his stress right away. Yeah. I mean, he's not worried about... Uh, you know, missing a payment or, or, you know, I've got 64 bucks. What am I going to do with that? What if right. I need something? Yeah. So you've reduced his stress. Um, you're also pulling in some of the social needs, because I think I heard boat loan in there. So he's got a boat. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's got those, the tier three things, which is the nice house, the nice car, the nice boat. Yeah. Um, uh, what an incredible uh, story. How you were able to pull the, and, that together. And that's
2: the thing. This is, this is another one of the misnomers is, is people seem to think that only the higher income earner or the, quote, rich can benefit from a financial planner or a financial plan. And it's just not true. It just isn't. It, 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 it is, this is a gentleman who was, as I said, I don't know, he was a self-employed contractor making, I don't know, let's say maybe $60,000 a year of income. He was uh, middle class, you know, lived in a nice neighborhood, a nice house like everyone else about most of the people out there. And when he took the time, and this is the fun part of my job, is I don't think his feet touched the floor when he left my office. And he knew he wasn't going to be rich. He knew he wasn't going to be, you know, but he was better off. And that's what financial planning is, if I can give it to you in a little nutshell. People start in their lives as they go through them, and they want to reach a retirement age, and let's just, because it's the legal age, let's use 65. So they start today, and they want to go through their life, and as they go through and their age increases, they want their savings and assets to increase to a point that when they reach retirement age, they have enough upon which to survive nicely. Does that make sense? hmm Okay, mm-hmm. but the reality for most people is they end up somewhere short of that goal. Is that a fair statement?
0: Uh. Mm, yeah.
2: Okay. Financial planning its goal, its function, is to fill that gap. It's to bring people as close to that gap as they can to where they want to be. If you, if you thought about it in a, in a graph form, bottom left-hand corner is where the time and the money start. And as they start going up and to the right, they get that gap widens. So if you wanted to, that's why time, by the way, is the single most important factor in a financial plan. Okay? Yep. Because the lower the gap, the less money it takes to fill it. That's why I believe many Canadians in their senior years sell their house. It's the biggest asset they have, and they need that large sum of money to fill the gap because they're $800,000 short of their retirement need. So, my question to everybody out there and to all my clients is. Would you like, would you, what's your choice? Would you rather sell your house because you want to or because you have to?
0: That's a pretty easy one to answer, but until you're in that situation, it becomes a bit harder.
2: Exactly. And the thing is, where the reality comes into it is, and when I ask a lot of people, they say, how long have you been living in that house? And for the most people, they've grown up, they've raised their children there. They've lived there for 20 years or more. I say, you can't tell me you're not comfortable there. But no one's going to come out and say to their friends and family, I don't have enough money to retire, so I have to sell my house. They say things that we hear every day. All the kids are gone, the room, the house is empty, I don't need the space. That's all true. But are they really selling their house because they want to or because they financially have to?
1: So So would you say this, I guess, Kevin, in a lot of ways, when people would come and see you, Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of people don't go to the dentist until they have a toothache. Right. So when they come to see you, it's usually they have a financial toothache. Yes. So it's a procrastination thing. Yes. I'll get around to it one day.
0: I'm retiring on Thursday. It's yes. now Tuesday. Yes. I need some retirement savings in two days. Go <laughs> ahead, Miracle Worker. I
2: want to go back a couple of minutes to a comment you made, Todd, or a question you asked, because another example in my life I think addresses that. And that was, are they talking about the big-ticket item or the day-to-day expenses? Again, meeting with another couple in their late 50s. They want to retire. And they're doing okay in life. They have good jobs, good income. So when I did their cash flow, they had, if I remember correctly, somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's say, $4,000 a month left over. They're not the $64 guy. Wow. They had 4000 But here they are in their late 50s. And they have no assets, no savings. So when I look at them and I was having my conversation with them, I'm saying, do you know what the single most difficult thing might be for you when it comes to me making a financial plan for you? And they said, what? I said, the discipline. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, how long have you been living like this, if you don't mind me asking? And the guy said... I'm going to just use five years because my math works better. (laughs) (laughs) I said, okay, five years, that's 60 months, at $4,000 a month is, and he finishes the sentence. He says, that's $240,000. Yikes. I said, yeah. I said, where is it?
0: Where did it go? Where did
2: it go? How much money can you realistically spend in five years and not know it? Now, when I ask people about, and we go over their cash flow, it's common that they don't remember that two years ago they put hardwood floors in or that they went to Mexico for a wedding and spent $5,000. They don't really remember those things, and that's fine. But this is $240,000. It's gone.
0: That's a mortgage almost.
2: That's the, yeah. And I said, I could put together a financial plan for you easily enough with $4,000 a month to work with. But the biggest thing for you is—you guys are in your late fifties. You've been living like this. Are you going to have the discipline that when I put together a plan that's going to take three thousand five hundred dollars? Are you going to have the way to tell me? Because they're not—they're not going to my
1: competition. They're going to Walmart. Yeah, and you know what, Kevin? I, I'm glad you bring that point up because the analogy I would use. Is somebody five years later that's gained seventy pounds, and they go, "Where the hell did it come from?" Yeah, it's like a diet, though. Then yep. you, you're, you're going to put them on a preferred eating program that's healthy and that's well, and it, it's the same premise. It's all about discipline. Exactly, and that's that
2: is the point I stress with all of my clients. Is this isn't? Is, I mean, actually, that is actually the analogy I use. It's a if you go to the doctor and you say, "I don't feel well." Well, they're not going to be much help to you. They have to ask questions, but they ask medical questions. Where does it hurt? I have to ask, where does it hurt financially?
0: <laughs> well, that's tax pain. Yeah. <laughs> that commercial. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I have to get information. I need to know how much money you make, what's your income, what are your expenses, what do you want to do? Because the thing is, what's going to motivate someone, almost anyone, and this might tie into Maslow as well, is it has to matter to them. Far too many advisors out there in the world, which doesn't help those of us who like to think we're pretty good at what we do, is they build a financial plan that benefits the advisor. No, I want to benefit the financial. I want my financial plan that I built to benefit you. It's your plan, Todd. It's not mine. Right. It's that exercise program the doctor gives you. He's not going to come to your house and do a sit-up for you. Right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Neither am I. All I can do is the three most important words a financial advisor might likely say to his or her client are, don't do that. Fundamentally, and this is another one I would like this conversation, people have difficulty understanding that for some reason when it comes to investments, their mind works backwards. Okay, and let's use that TV analogy we talked about 10 minutes ago kind of thing. Yeah, you walk into any kind of technical store, future shop, whatever, and you see that they have, you know, a laptop or a TV on, on, on sale for 300 bucks the 60-inch flat screen. You're going to buy five of them. <laughs> one for upstairs, one for downstairs, one for mom, one for the cottage. The garage. One for the garage. But if you walked in there the next day or the same day and you saw that the price was for that same TV was now $15,000, you're going to scream at them and say that's ridiculous and you wouldn't even think of buying it, right? Right. But how come when an investment does that and it hits the 15000 that's when everyone wants it? How come nobody wanted it when it was three hundred? dollars Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I look at them and I say, that's the biggest problem when it comes to investing. All of a sudden, your mind works backwards. I don't want that. That's $300. Okay. I want that. It's 15000 But if I make it a TV or a toaster, you think I'm nuts trying to sell you that.
0: Right. So just going back for a second, it takes the discipline and the mindset to do this. It's for, for you to get them to realize that it has to be important to them yes. for it to be successful. Correct. Or otherwise, then it's just, like you said, short of showing up on their doorstep every month to grab the 4000 from them and go and head to the, you know, whatever you're going to stick it in. They really need to get that level of competency and self-sufficiency to make it happen monthly.
2: Yes. And, and, and to do that, what they have to, what people have to be able to do is understand that the burden of debt and the payment are not the same thing. People have this mindset that their mortgage payment, for example, is a financial burden to them, okay? Mm -hmm. But then I'll ask them this question. If you had, let's say, I don't know, for the sake of conversation, let's say you owed $150,000 or more on your mortgage, and you were paying $1,200 a month for your mortgage, is that $1,200 a month of financial burden to you? And everybody says, yes. I say, okay. If you had, oh, I don't know, let's say $125,000 of savings or assets in you know, easy liquid form.
0: Talking whiskey, scotch, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, liquid cash, oh, my wait, friend, okay, liquid so. cash. Mm-hmm. Okay, accessible. Mm-hmm. If you had $100,000 sitting in accessible cash for you, would your $1,200 monthly mortgage payment be a financial burden to you? No. No. But you're still going to make the payment, aren't you? Of course. Okay. So you can remove the burden without removing the payment. People make that mistake, and they think one is attached to the other, and it's not.
1: So I guess the I guess what it then boils down to, Kevin, is this poor decision-making.
2: Well, if I wanted to be mean and cruel, yeah doesn't help me if I'm trying to talk to them into some kind of thing. It, you, you want to help them make that realization as nicely as possible, but that's where it is. That's where the discipline is going to start. They're going to have to realize that, you know what, yeah, I may have to make some tough decisions on my day-to-day life to improve my future.
1: And you see, that's where it comes in from a psychological perspective, that there's a lot of people, Kevin, that don't have the foresight to think abstractly, to see the variety and plethora of consequences that can exist. Rather, they're just in this concrete option, you know, concrete mindset that this is what it is here and now. Yes.
2: And and what you're describing, in a way I think of, is we call it the value of advice. And there are so many reports and statistics done today on how the value of an actual professional advisor makes a difference. And I, off the top of my head, I know I've seen a report that says the people earning an income, say, between $55,000 and $60, $70,000, have, if they're not working with a professional advisor, I think they have an average savings or assets of about 30000 And if they're working with an advisor, it's 250000 it's like It's almost seven times the amount. And in every age category, and in every household income category, in these surveys, the people working with a professional advisor have significantly higher assets and savings. And it's that uh, maybe it's that self-actualization where they have the ability to look for the facts and say, "Just come and talk to me and explain it to me." They they've gone past the embarrassment. They've gone past the the you know the feelings of guilt or that they're not good enough. They understand that they need help. They understand that if I need a plumber, I go get a professional. They understand if I need medical attention, I go to a doctor. It's amazing. And I laugh. Somebody made a great comment a couple weeks ago about people getting their financial advice out of the Globe and Mail or the newspapers. No offense to the Globe and Mail. And the guy's comment was, you're going to get your financial advice for something you paid a buck for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it might be $2 on (laughs) weekends. Yeah,
2: yeah, there you go. And you just, you kind of, for those of us in the industry, in the business, we just kind of go, yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh.
0: We've got a couple minutes left, and uh, we really want to ask you about... Okay, today's April the 30th. It's yep. uh, the, well, it would have been the final day for filing our taxes had not the heartbleed bug uh, intervened. But let's go with April 30th being tax return day. Mm-hmm. Some of us, not me, but some of us will see some significant money coming back. Mm-hmm. What could we do with that money? What would be a good way to maximize that money coming back to us?
2: Well, uh, that is a, that's a great question. At the same time, it is a bit of a vague question mm-hmm. because that's one of the intricacies of a financial plan. There, there's no cookie-cutter financial plan. You, there's three of us. We're talking. We, each of us have different stages in life. Each of us have different factors. So to someone, I might say, okay, take your savings, take that tax return, and put it on your debt. I could say, take your, actually, one way I've talked to many people, I'll ask them this question, I'll say, when it comes to paying off your mortgage or getting a mortgage and paying it off, what are the three things that seem to interest you most? The interest rate you're going to pay, how much you're going to have to pay a month, or whether or not you can have someone else pay it off for you. And usually they get the last one and they say, what do you mean someone else pay it off for me? (laughs) And I say, well, if I can get, Canada revenue to pay thirty thousand dollars towards your mortgage for the next fifteen years. Would you? Would that be okay? Hmm. And they look at me and they say, "What well, do you mean? CRA is not going to pay my mortgage?" I say, "Well, they will." Let's say you have uh, you're in the forty percent marginal tax bracket. You put five thousand dollars into your RSP. You're going to get a two thousand dollar tax return. You take the two thousand dollars. You put it on your mortgage. You do that every year for 15 years, you're going to pay your mortgage off a lot faster. And the CRA has just paid $30,000 towards that mortgage.
0: Thank you, Canadian government.
2: Thank you, yes. Canadian government.
0: Interesting. So there are several ways, obviously, to look at it. And I guess the best way is for them to get in touch with you and, and mm-hmm. set up an appointment. And uh, where, can we, uh, where can we reach out to you?
2: Uh, you can reach out to me at 416-292-7229 extension 316, or you can email me at kevin.murdoch, and that's M-U-R-D-O-C-K at investorsgroup.com.
0: Excellent. A real pleasure to talk to you today, Kevin.
1: Yes, thanks thanks very much for having me. I, I had a great time. Excellent. And for those listening, definitely check out Kevin. Kevin's got a wealth, pun intended, of information for you, and he could change your life for the better.
0: And your website is uh, pretty good, too, on the Investors Group. Some really great free uh, money-saving tips, so uh, some good reading there to uh, tide them over until they meet with you in person. Absolutely. You're, of course, listening to Matters of the Mind. Our thanks to Kevin Murdoch today for uh, bringing us up to speed on all things financial and how some of them impact on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca time to think about retirement
2: savings as a consultant with investors group financial services kevin murdoch can help put time on your side with timely rsp tax savings and business planning tips to help you maximize your investment returns now is the time to call kevin murdoch at 416-292-7229 that's 416-292-7229 because after all with rsps time literally is money the plan by By Investors Group, a personalized approach designed to help you prosper now and over time.
0: Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco.
1: Well, hello there, and welcome back to Matters of the Mind. You know what, Todd, i got to say. I am just absolutely aghast, extremely disappointed that Kevin has left the building. The reason being as while Kevin was leaving, I got a message on Skype. And supposedly a fellow from Accra, Ghana contacted me to tell me he has $4.4 million U.S. For me, waiting in an account. It's been in there for 72 calendar months, and that he'd like to transfer it into my bank account. Hmm. about winning a lottery I was not part of. And because he tells me, this is the best part, that I, Peter Sacco, was killed in an earthquake. He was one of the death victims in March 11th, 2011. So, is this the doppelganger of myself that he's going to send this to?
0: The namesake, and then you get to enjoy the windfalls, and I'm sure you're going to send him some money out of that, right? That's what he wants.
1: Yeah, after Kevin gets through
0: with me. Well, you know, we should get Kevin back on the phone in a future show, and and we'll plan out how to spend that. Uh, what it, you'll probably get 3.3 million out of it, or something, and uh, you know where we're going to do the show next year. Maybe some resort somewhere down south.
1: If I am so lucky, it's kind of interesting. And with that said, all joking aside. Be aware of these people; these scam artists. It's ridiculous.
0: They pray. They pray on the the weak-minded. Of course, we don't count ourselves as the weak-minded, do we?
1: Absolutely not. So for everybody listening today, thank you so much for joining us. And we will be back with another great show.
0: Catch us next Wednesday right here at Listen Up Talk Radio at 8 p.m. And, of course, it's on demand the next day. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com. Or you can reach him through Listen Up at Talk Radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Listen Up Talk Radio, on Twitter at, at Listen Talk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need
1: no man is not your man. And that's why